Welcome to the new HR Futures podcast. Um, I'm Kevin Green. Uh, this is brought to you by Expedite and Circal. Uh, with me today uh, is Sarah Mason, who is the Chief People Officer at Foxton's, the state agencies. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you, Kevin. Um, tell us a little bit about your role at Foxton. Just tell us a bit about the size of the organisation. I think most people have got an idea about what they do, but any yes. kind of differentiator and a little bit about what you're responsible for. So Foxton's are London's leading estate agent and we do both lettings and sales. We're known for our very famous minis that everyone sees around London. We've got a whole fleet of them, um, stacks of those things. Um, And we're well known for being on pretty much most high streets in London, but also Surrey. We've got about 1,100 headcount. It goes up and down depending on seasonal demand. And we also, we're we're a PLC. So the estate agency world um, has got a few big players at the top and then lots and lots of small boutique places. We're one of the bigger ones. And like I say, we became a PLC in 2013. Okay. And being the chief people officer there, what do you focus on? What what do you focus on? (laughs) Everything people, basically. And I think um, it was a new role for me. We didn't used to have a chief people officer. It was brand new. Previously, we had... Um, actually a personnel director and we soon changed that to HR. I can talk you through that in, in a bit um, and, and recruitment and training covered separately. So it's a bit of a move for Foxton's to really invest okay. in in that area to have a new chief people officer coming in. So okay. the, the role very much focuses on supporting our people to deliver exceptional service. Okay. So again, it's very much around finding good people, people that fit the culture, people, presumably salespeople predominantly. I imagine that's the bulk of your workforce, is it? Yeah, I think it's probably, um, say, two-thirds of our workforce will be, we, we call them negotiators, our estate agents. So two-thirds of our workforce will be people out in the front selling and letting houses for our, for, for our customers. And then the other third is we've got a really big operational um, structure behind them. So unlike some estate agents out there where everything's just focused in branch we've got a huge back office so a really big tech division technology is a really big part of foxton's so tell me how you use technology in estate agents so i know it seems like an odd one so for instance if you're um letting a property the my foxton's app will help our customers you know see what kind of compliance things they need to do how they can get money back from their tenants how they can manage the tax behind it so my foxen's app is an example of the technology we'd use to help support that lettings can be a quite a complex process and obviously we manage quite a lot of those lettings they're not just we don't just yeah. shove tenants in a lot of the time it's actually about managing that letting as well so technology always supports that we are well known for having um, a really bespoke system built for our estate agents so with a network of estate agency often they're just focused on their patch and that's it we've got a really um bespoke in-house CRM that helps all our estate agents calculate you know who's in which area so they can see all the properties across all of London rather than just the ones in their patch which is really key. Okay tell me a bit about how you got into HR Um, because clearly I think you've had a slightly different route to others. Uh, Did you ever think you'd be an HR director or chief people officer? Do do you know what I back in the day and it was a while ago when I was at university first time round I did actually fancy a career in personnel, as I was back then, because I did a psychology degree, and I always hoped I'd end up with that, Um, but ended up falling into sales like most people. I did a door-to-door sales job in America literally two weeks after my final exams. Off I went to Wisconsin, where there was literally no public transport or public lighting. It's the most interesting sales job I've ever had. Selling books to people, commission only, um, and then ended up getting a series of sales jobs after that, um, before I eventually thought, 
do you know what? I will go back. I really wanted that job in HR once I've got some sales under my belt. Did my time in the trenches. And then it was an easy jump, really, into HR. It doesn't sound like one, but I went from working as a... It it is, isn't it? it? it, Not lots of people in HR have done that. But because I went from door-to-door sales to media sales to a recruitment consultant, and then being a recruitment consultant for a couple of years then gave me the... um, the, the springboard to go into in-house recruitment. Yes, you do the internal yes, bit. that's it. And then segwayed that way. Presumably, internal recruitment and a bit of learning and development is a... Yeah, the, the classic one. Started in in-house recruitment, which I loved, and then built in employee engagement, cultural surveys, yeah, yeah. then built in learning and development. And then I realised, actually, to be a generalist, there was quite a few bits I was missing, mainly employment law. So I went back and studied and did my employment law. Yeah, you law did diploma. a master's, didn't you? I did, I did a master's in organisational psychology, but I also had to go and get some formal knowledge around employment law. So I did my diploma in employment law just before okay. that. Because actually there's a few things you can't really wing. You can't wing it with employment law. You've got no, to get it right. It's, Absolutely. Yeah, factual, isn't it? yeah. Um, so in reality, what then happened in terms of your career? So you're doing this sort of internal role. Where was that? That was at S3, wasn't it, for the yeah. bulk of your career? I had a really happy 10 years there. Yeah, yeah. S- S3, then hydrogen. So they're both PLCs in the recruitment world. I had a happy 10 years S3. It was a brilliant opportunity for me to... First of all, do the job of a recruitment consultant, and it was great culture. Um, and secondly, they then what Estuary were very good at is moving people into different roles. So if you wanted to move from a sales role, you could. And otherwise, it can be quite difficult for people to jump into an in-house role. So that was fantastic. And then, and then because I was working, again, in a company that knew me well, they were quite happy for me to bolt on extras to my job. So mm. great, you've done in-house recruitment. How about a bit of engagement? How about a bit of learning and development? And that was fantastic for me. Because S3 is an interesting. I mean, you know, all recruiters are different. They're yeah. not all the same. And S3s, you know, I, I always think about it as being very entrepreneurial. Lots of people that have been there have come out. I mean, so when I was at the RSC, I knew loads of people that had worked at S3. You know, they develop people well. They give people confidence. And a lot of people then want to go off and do their own thing. Yes. So tell me a bit about, you know, the culture and, and the things that you were focusing on there. So when I was there... Um, when I was moving into the in-house role, what I was focusing on was was getting enough talent in. And there are huge comparables between Estuary and Foxton's, actually. Um, they're almost identical in the way they've been um, evolved. Both of them have been going for about 30-odd years. Both of them set up by entrepreneurs. Both of them then got private investment and then IPO'd and became yeah. listed companies. And both of them are brokerage um, sales-based companies, you know, it's a, whether it's a recruitment yeah. consultant or an estate agent, the job is to bring two parties together. And again, really without products, it's all about the service offering. So therefore, the sales teams are really the heart and soul of the business. Yeah, um, and as a result, it puts HR at the heart of strategy in the business. You've got to get your people yeah. right. You've got to get the right talent in. You've got to be able to keep them. You've got to be able to motivate them. Um, and that's what I think is really important for me at Foxton's at the moment. How do we how do we get that really embedded in our culture, the right people, in the right role, at the right time, right level of performance? And I think I carried that with me across my recruitment career mm-hmm. into Foxton's. So then. you progressed quite a bit at, uh, at S3 and then moved to Hydrogen. Yes. Why do that? What was the... Actually, I'd, it was, I never thought I would leave S3 because I was, you know, I thought I'd, you know, live and die there. It was a really, I was really embedded in, in that role. Um, I went off on mat leave, actually, I went off on maternity oh, leave to have okay. my daughter. And I think sometimes you have a bit of a break and you think, well, it might be nice to try something new. Um, so I went off, had my, had my daughter and I took 18 months off because I've always worked full time. I thought it'd be nice to take a longer mat leave, mm. which was lovely. And my daughter's now 12, which I find astonishing. 
had a parents' <laughs> night last night. There you go, um, trying to balance things. Um, and, and so I went out off for maternity leave, had my daughter, and then thought, well, I'll try a different company. It's a good opportunity to, to do something different and ended up at Hydrogen. And what was the difference between Hydrogen and S3? They're like chalk and cheese. They couldn't be more different, I think. Um, there's a difference in silent size and scale, certainly, because obviously S3 was physically a lot bigger. There's about 2,500 staff in in, in S3, and there was about 300 staff in Hydrogen at that point, 300 or 400 staff. Um, very different cultures. S3 is pacey, um, full-on entrepreneurial, um, fast-paced. Hydrogen was a bit more measured, different mm. different makeup of staff there, different type of individual, um, far less entrepreneurial, far more measured. There was a, such a difference in those two cultures. Yeah. And I think for me, it was a real challenge going in, actually, because I think they must have thought, who's this coming in? <laughs> Where did she yeah, come yeah. from? Um, with my, um, you know, fast-paced ideas and, and ways of working. So it was a bit, it was an interesting um, transition for me to make, to learn how to shift to different cultures. And then you sort of went off and did um, consulting. So you worked with different mm-hmm. clients. So you were working for Talent Advantage. Now, I don't quite understand that because from your CV, I don't know whether you did a piece of work and then you yes. became became your business. I didn't quite... quite Tell advantage. But you did yeah. that four or five years. I did that four and, a four, four and a half years. So I, when I left Hydrogen, I set up my own consultancy. Talent Advantage right. was the name of my consultancy. Um, just working um, as an independent consultant. Um, and my very first client was, in fact, Faden. So my first client was Adam, who I knew, Adam Buck, who I knew from my S3 days. And then, of course, what happens to lots of people who go freelance is your first client offers you a job and, and you take it. And that's what happened to me. So I met Adam, did some work with him around leadership development. And he said, well, I could do with an HR director, come and join me. So I did. So when I worked with Adam then for a year and a half, but I really wanted to go back and do my consulting piece. Did, did and what was time. the draw of the consulting? What was it that you, uh, why did you keep wanting to go back to that? I think for me, I, it was something I hadn't done, something I wanted to give a go. And also I thought to be the best opportunity for me to get my master's. I did my master's alongside working full time. So I deliberately chose Birkbeck um, University mm. for my master's. They do all their lectures in the evening. So it me- meant that I could fit, fit in my work in the daytime and then go off, go off to the lectures in the evening. Mm. I, I really underestimated how much commitment was required. And actually there's this, there's a real naivety, certainly there was for me, around how freelance consultancy gives you loads of freedom. Actually it doesn't. You're very much dictated to by your clients. And I was I was... I was very quickly successful at it, uh, surprisingly so. The Growth Accelerator programme was around back then, so oh, you could yeah, 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 you get 50% yeah, yeah. funding. So I ended up landing a lot of leadership programmes straight out the bat. And were you working in different sectors, or was it predominantly...? Predominantly recruitment. Because had, obviously you knew that. That's my network. That all, all, yeah. all my work came from referrals. I didn't have to contact anyone. All my work got called in, which sounds like a really big luxury, but it meant that I was constantly racing to catch up. And um, so I'd have lots of leadership programmes, some of them funded by the Growth Accelerator programme. So I'd literally be delivering training in the, in the daytime, in the evening. I'd either be designing training for the next day mm-hmm. or going to lectures, you know, constant um, busyness. So it was the naivety of me to think I could, it would be an easy ride. Was, was, I was very much mistaken. It was full on. I really enjoyed it. Um, but actually, you are dictated to a lot by your mm-hmm. clients. You know, if someone comes, as I got all the time, someone phones up and says, we'd love you to do a bit of work for us. You can't really say no. In recruitment, it's, and we want it tomorrow. They're not going to wait for four months. They want it now. And if you say no, then you've lost that client. They'll go and find someone else. So that, it was at pace. Um, did you try, did you think about growing it as a business? So employing other people or creating a little network or? Uh, yeah, did, I did think about that. There's a really, you know, the, the associate model is is alive and kicking in that market. Um, it wasn't something I wanted to do. I think for me at that point, it was, it was I wanted to do interesting work with clients I liked or loved working with. 
um, doing using using the the studying I was doing at the time, um, and that I didn't really want the complexity of adding in employees in the okay. mix, and I didn't really know anyone that I think actually at that point who would have been right for what I was doing. What I did was quite niche, and, um, and I didn't okay. didn't know anyone who could. Fit and when to you look that. back on that, what do you think that period gave you? You know, so for in terms of skills and approaches, and that's a really great question. I think it gave me massive breadth of experience across different cultures and it gave me it sharpened my knowledge alongside really identifying issues I got I got a bit jaded by my competitors there's lots of competitors out there who would mm. they would just do the same thing in each client they do the same approach you kind of go but they've got a different problem there that's not going to work over there and I'd I'd have to pick that up with quite a few yeah, clients yeah. they'd say so and so came in and did this and you go well that's not going to work so that's not what problem you've got is it so it was what I enjoyed about it was I got to really f- focus on consultancy because my master's was, was, a, was a quite a strange master's to do. The actual MSc was um, an MSc in management consultancy and organisational change. Okay. So it's a combination of uh, MBA stuff. I know it's a mouthful, isn't it? MBA stuff, organisational psychology um, and some HR thrown in. But the management consultancy models were very useful to use yeah, in my consultancy absolutely. around identification yeah. of problems. So, so the skills I got were... Understanding different cultures, understanding the importance of context, flexing my style to different ways of working, and really quickly understanding how decisions are made. Where does the power sit? How are decisions made? How can I build alliances? Um, which I well, I love that bit. That was great. Really enjoyed it. I mean, I, I just think that I think it's a great way of developing your capability. Actually, you know, I think it gives you a commercial handle on what you're doing I think you have to diagnose quite quickly understand what's going on you've got to come up with solutions uh, under sort of time pressure and cost pressure so I think it's a really good way of developing sort of HR capability commercial HR capability you then decided though to go back into full-time employment why decide to do that I think I did I wasn't planning to I was really enjoying my time on on my own, as it were, working with lots yeah. of um, interesting clients, and I had some really lovely clients. Um, but I ended up going back to S3 for a, um, an interim role. So Natasha Clark, who was the chief people Natasha. officer then, yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely loved Natasha, and I'd worked with her previously. She got in touch to say that S3 were looking at an organisational design project, um, and it was going to be quite intensive. They needed someone, you know, full time or four days a week for a year. Um, and I ended up saying, well, I'll do four days a week for six months and then we'll see. But I ended up doing 18 months for them, which I really enjoyed. And it was just so lovely being back. First of all, Estuary, I knew everyone. So it's nice to be back with my old crew. Um, secondly, the fam- familiarity of going into an office, the same place every day, chatting to people, you know, having a str- structure. Yeah. You, you I sort missed of don't that. belong when you're running. Yeah. You, never, you, 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 you haven't got a team. It's you? nomadic, isn't it? Something. Absolutely. Yeah. I spent my life in different pret a you know, prepping for things and being back in S3, it was it was lovely being back with people, a team around me, yeah. and the familiar, familiarity. And also the pace is slightly less hectic. When you're a consultant, when you step inside someone's building and they're paying you a, a substantial day rate, they want their pound of flesh from you and you have to deliver. And it's it, that can be quite exhausting if it's constant, constantly delivering. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it was quite nice being back in S3 doing that. And I suddenly thought, Do you know what, I'm, in, I'm enjoying being... Someone said to me, what's it like being being back in harness again? Which I thought was a really interesting way of putting it. And I said, I really love it. It was really nice being back in a role where it was familiar and comfortable. And I thought, I have missed that belonging piece. Yeah. I miss the familiar, familiarity of being part. 
of something. And I thought, Do you know what, I might, I might consider that. Then all of a sudden, out of, out of the blue, Foxtons came along. It wasn't something I chose. So did they, did they find you or did you find them? They, they found me. I, um, I wasn't particularly looking, um, but I'd, said, I'd always said to myself, if something came along, it would have to be a PLC, it would have to be a household name. I'd want it to be outside of recruitment because I was so used to being in recruitment to want something different. Um, and there was plenty of recruitment roles being offered to me, but I thought, Do you know what, something comes along yeah, yeah. slightly different. And then one of I, mean, I was at that point a non-exec for Devil Smith, who were a property recruitment company been non-exec for them for about two or three years at that point and they got in touch and said one of our clients Foxton's they'd like some advice on HR so he said you should go and meet them and I just assumed it would be a meeting about consultancy and I actually said to Andrew Andrew, Andrew Devil Smith said what do you want me to talk about he went that thing you do go and do that thing with them I went okay I'll go and do my thing over with Foxton's so I went along expecting it to be a meeting around consultancy and I met their COO Patrick Franco who's lovely and halfway through the meeting, I was kind of saying, well, you should probably do this and this and this. And he said, here's the thing, you, your suggestions are great and we'd like to do all of those things, but there's no one here who can execute it. Why don't you come and join us as our CPO? I was like, well, that's interesting. I you know, wasn't expecting that, that from the meeting. So ended up meeting the CEO and the CFO um, and then took the job. It was a great one. And so how long have you been there now? About 18 months now, okay. just over, just over 18 months. And what's your focus been? So, I mean, you know, what, what did you do when you first went in? What did I do when I first went in? The, the first thing we needed to do really quickly was change the way we were hiring people. Okay. A lot of our hiring practices were built for, a, like we call it a frothy market or buoyant market. Yeah. So in a really good market, it's very um, easy to, to kind of attract and select people who can be successful in the state agency because actually... We're in a really buoyant market. The houses are virtually going to sell themselves a little bit. You just need lots of people to come in and help help administer that. In a challenging market, you need a different type of individual. So we were still using the recruitment practices that we'd used for the last 10, 15 okay. years, and they weren't really getting us the right people through the door. Um, so that all changed quite quickly. So I've got a, a new head of talent acquisition in, George Lansdale, who used to work with me at Hydrogen, knew her really well. In fact, I was her first boss. I got <laughs> hired her for a first graduate job 10 years ago. So she's, she's now joined us. She's doing an exceptional job. Love working with George. And we started transforming that team from what we called seat fillers to star finders. We repurposed yeah, yeah, yeah. it. It's really important. Okay. Um, so tell us a bit about why, you know, you've worked in recruitment, you've done consulting in other sectors, but you seem to be sort of in a sales environment. Yeah. And, and is that through choice? Is that through something you've sort of, or, or experience? And, and what do you love about it? And what do you find frustrating about it? I'm sure there's things that are good and bad. There, there, are there will professions. be. And I think, um, I think it's probably both, it's definitely a choice. I love working in sales companies. Um generally fast-paced, lively, you get great cultures, you get people who are really good fun to work with, um, lots of energy, and I, I love that. I, I mean, I really wouldn't have it any other way. However, I think there's also an element of people being pigeonholed a little bit in HR. So if you're in a retail organisation, people only want people with a retail background. You know, if you're in professional services, yeah, you yeah. want someone. So I think there's an element of people tend to stick in their industries a bit in HR, which is a shame, really, because I think that yeah, across, so. across pollination would be brilliant so I think part of it is actually I'm sure there's a lot of people out there mm. who'd, who would disregard me because of my sales background but I, I'm happy to be in sales it's, they're, they're my tribe right they are my people I, I think it's great and in terms of positives and negatives positives are generally things happen quickly so it doesn't take two years to get things off the ground you can get them done quick entrepreneurs extroverts super quick in their decision making because actually they want an impact on the bottom line really really yeah, quickly yeah. there's there's a very very clear correlation between 
number of headcount and revenue streams in sales organisations. You need lots of people, the right people, doing things well quickly. So as a result, HR can, can move things quickly, get a real impact that way. Some of the downsides are when it's super quick, it can, um, it can sometimes be a bit pacey um, and you need to sometimes hold your nerve a little bit. So the downside, I think, with sales organisations can often be very, very quick. They want the, they want the results immediately. Yeah, so. they want the results immediately. And sometimes there are some projects, like cultural change, that yeah, can take yeah, much longer. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to get cultural change happening in less than two years, if I'm honest. You know, but, but again, sales cultures went, can I have it yesterday, can I have it tomorrow? There's an element of, of actually managing people at the top to say, mm. I can deliver that, deliver that for you, I can, but you're going to have to give me a bit longer than three months. Mm. That one will take six. This one I can do in three. That one's going to take nine. Mm-hmm. And, and getting people to understand why is, is part mm. of my role, I think. And I think the other thing that always fascinates me in sales organisations, the whole thing about management is perhaps not recognised. They sort of do, but you know, it's about billers and targets and revenue and profitability and all of that. So they get people deliver profit, people deliver revenue. But they often sort of underestimate, I think, the value of what great coaches and leaders bring to managing others and and that's always difficult because there's always that, you know, that, I don't know, tension between, you know, someone being a great fee earner and yes. do we want them to do management? Do we not want them to do management? Have they really got the skills to do it? Or like, you know, how do you deal with that conundrum? It's the biggest chestnut in sales, isn't it? You get someone who's an exceptional salesperson, but frankly shouldn't be let anywhere near management at all. And we see a lot of our top billers are like that across, you know, all the industries I've worked in. Um, however, if you don't promote the top billers, they're going to leave. You know, what do we do about that? And the challenge is really a, a real one. I think it's very much around having different opportunities for different groups, having great opportunities for people who just want to bill and not manage. Fine, go and do that. We'll, we need to make routes for those people. Yeah, you've got to have career, career routes, routes for them. They can, feel that they can still get the status they need and the recognition they need. Uh, and I think we need to, with the other route of management, we need to take it really seriously. Another thing I've been working on in the last year and a half since I joined, another big thing. I want to jump on quickly was actually in Foxton's we're quite um, light on our people I mean we most estate agents have got a reputation being quite hard-nosed actually in Foxton's they're a bunch of softies they're really lovely to their people Um, everyone loves their colleagues and as a result often we don't really have really good management around how we manage targets and objectives in the way that other sales organisations would. In recruitment, it's brutal. I mean, my goodness, you know, everyone knows what their target is and how much their seat costs them to sit in and how much their coffee costs. You know, there's an element of that. In Foxton's, not so much. So what, I, what I'm not, didn't want to suggest is we go too far with it. Mm. What we've actually brought in is a coaching platform called Open Blend. It's a brilliant... I know it. You know, it's know a brilliant bit of kit. It's fantastic. It's very, it's very people-centric. It focuses on the individual, not the manager, and it helps managers have better conversations around the whole person. So if you've seen it, you'll know it's not just about beasting people on target. It's actually saying, yeah. what's getting in the way of doing well? And how can we as a company support you in doing better? So that got launched at the end of last year. We've just done the first round of our appraisals using it. Overwhelmingly positive. So starting to introduce this culture Fantastic. of proper coaching rather than target focused. You know, a bit more focused on what's the individual need from us and how can we support them? So I think that's one of the, that answers that conundrum about how do we help managers. Tools like that are a bit of a godsend, I think. Okay. So tell us now, sort of looking back at your time as a, an HR practitioner in these different organisations, so tell us about thing that perhaps you're proudest of, the thing where you've seen something from beginning to end and it's made a big organisational impact. I think, I've got, I think there's quite a few things I'd put my hand up and go, I'm pretty cool with that. And most of them end with 
an end user turning to me and saying, I didn't know HR did that. You don't seem like an HR person. Is your team actually going, well, I am an HR person. So I'm always proudest when I've done what a What do you think they mean by that? They, when they say that's, you're not I, an HR person. <laughs> I think I've got an idea. But you need to tell me it's interesting, isn't it? What they mean is someone who um, adds value and is commercial and understands salespeople often. And they weirdly, they love my... No one's ever interested in the fact that I'm a chartered fellow at the CIPD. They love the fact I've picked up a phone and billed half a million. And that's really important to them that I've been in the trenches. But when they say you're not really an HR person, they mean not the fun police. You know, I'm not the person saying no to them. I'm not the person who just focuses on process. And I think... There's a bit of um, a paradox, isn't it? Because whilst people hate process, everyone likes to have a contract. They like to be treated fairly. So we do have some boxes to tick in that sense. But it shouldn't just be about box ticking. It should be about adding value, getting things over the line. So they go, I can see you had an impact there. And that's why I don't think you're very HR-y. Which is mm. sad, really. But I do get that yeah. a lot. Uh, and I've always sort of felt that way myself as people have said that to me. So I've always been... a quite an operational sort of business person first, HR person second. And people often say, well, you're not really HR. And you go, well, what do you mean by that? And and they'll say policies and process and control yes. and order and structure. Yes. And I actually think that, you know, our job is to do the softer side of growth and development and all of that. But anyhow, um, so I get that. So, so proudest thing so you said you sort of were talking started to talk yes. about a couple a number of projects i think most of my jobs in the last 10 years have been being bought into organizations where their hr team possibly wasn't adding enough value or wasn't doing what the business needed it to do often because the managers at the top the owner managers didn't know what hr should do so it's a bit like the blind leading the blind sometimes so some of my previous roles i've been bought in where things haven't been going so well and the transformation is a bit that I'm most proud of, to get into a point whereby you go, actually, you couldn't hire people before, now we've got you the right number of heads. Yeah. Actually, you had a retention problem before, we've got you now to a pl- place where you're keeping your talent. And it's always a bit at the end whereby there's a commercial outcome that you can put a flag in and say, I did that, I did that. You know, Examples might include, in one company, I don't want to reference names, but in one co- company, at the end of my first year, we had two different ways of hiring. And half the business just said, we're going to stick with the way we're doing it. Thanks very much indeed. I'm like, no, go for it. There's plenty to plenty to do. and I'll, But I'll obviously bring in my own in-house team and we'll see how we get on. And at the end of the year, comparing both to say, the ones through the in-house team are five times more likely to stay. Mm. You know, what do you want to do with that? And well, we'll, obviously we'll roll the processes out for next year. So having a really good commercial measurable outcome at the end that you can link to the practices you've done I think is always a proud moment for me and do you think that's one of the things I mean we'll talk about HR as a profession a bit later but do you think that's one of the things that we're not as strong as we should be which is starting with the commercial output at the beginning as the requirement yes and then and working the the solution back to deliver a, a clear measurable outcome yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think um, I think some some HR practitioners are like that. There's still lots of great great people out there. I, I had one of my contacts get in touch me recently on LinkedIn. He's got a new role, and he he just joined a company. He said I'm doing you know I'm getting the recruitment sorted. Then I'm doing career paths. Then I'm doing journeys. Then I'm doing structure. And I thought that's only because that he knows what to do. Right? That that doesn't mean what problem is he solving. I'd start with what problem do I need? What's the organisational goal before going into that? So people jump in quite quickly with, I've done this before, therefore I'll start doing that now. And they don't spend enough time thinking, what is the organisational goal? What are the people bits that support that? And in sales organisations, there's such a clear line between the two. Yeah, there is. It's either the wrong talent's coming in or talent's leaving or talent doesn't know what to do properly. Yeah. But it's it's usually, it doesn't need too much of a deep dive. Usually it's, and usually the front the frontline staff can tell you what's going wrong. They'll say yeah. it's this, you know. It doesn't doesn't take too much unpacking a lot no. of the time. 
Um, another piece of reflection, things that perhaps haven't gone so well, for things where you've learned from perhaps a mistake or trying stuff and it didn't stick. Because I think you, you know, and I think that's what's interesting about these podcasts is we're quite keen to get people to talk about the reality of, yeah. you know, not everything works. Um, and sometimes you learn as much from that experience as you do from things when they go incredibly well. Yes. Um, I think probably the two big things I would have learned and one one supported the other is early on in my career, I very naively thought it was important to be right and I spent a lot of time being right at things. And I was very, it was very important for me to have the facts. And my facts would mean that when anyone disagreed with me, I'd go, no, 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 I've got the facts here and this is what the problem is. And I must have been really insufferable and horrible. It must have been really irritating because, you know, it's really irritating to have someone who, who's always right all the time. And, um, and I had to shift quite quickly to realise, it didn't take me longer than I should, that actually it's not always important to be right. You need to understand influence. You need to understand where the power sits, how decisions are made, you know, how do you get people on side? How do you have a shared outcome? Not my outcome, but everyone around the table. How does everyone have an outcome that they can buy mm. into and understand what levers to pull? And that's way more interesting and enjoyable than being right all the time. So I stopped picking battles that I didn't need to. So how did you learn that? So that was the second point. I had some very brutal 360 feedback um, and it was done very badly at the time. Um, and everything that could have been done wrong with it was. So, um, for instance, they, it wasn't anonymous. They left the names on by mistakes. So I saw what my colleagues thought of me, brutal black and white. Um, it was linked to a pay rise, which is not, it's very bad practice. You're not supposed to do that. I didn't even know it was happening. So it was a surprise for me to be presented with five, five pages of that, that information. And then finally, um, I was given the information like in a room for my appraisal and expected to react to it without even having a chance to reflect on it. So it was, all, it was like a car crash. Um, and I wouldn't ever want to revisit that. There were some tears, put it that way. But over the six months it took me to stop sulking, I did actually take a lot of it on. And I actually went through a few more rounds of that. I went through about four or five rounds of 360 feedback over the next few years there. And whilst it was the first few rounds were painful, it was brilliant development for me. And it got me to realise that the way I was behaving probably wasn't as helpful as it could be. So it, it just took someone... I mean, I, I think holding a mirror up to people is useful. There are ways of doing it. And then if I look back, I think it could have been done in a, a more productive way. But the lesson landed very quickly. OK, just before we sort of uh, have a break, um, tell me a bit about... Um, you know, perhaps the things that you're working on now, um, you know, some of the bigger challenges and, 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 and a bit about, you know, what you, I suppose, what the next year, 18 months holds for you. So a little bit about what you think the focus is at Foxton's. So the focus of Foxton's at the moment is is reacting to market changes when they happen. And it's almost difficult to plan next week at the moment. You know, it's kind of yeah, with yeah. Brexit, Brexit is obviously going to change the landscape, the political landscape, landscape and Property and estate agency is very sensitive to that. They, say, they, they talk in the in the press and economists saying that the the election result has helped and there seems to have yes. been some movement at the top end of the market and we're waiting for all of that to filter on down. We are, and I think the you know, the much lauded Boris bounce, as it's called, and um, Nick Budden, our CEO, has recently been talking about you know being positive and optimistic based on the increase in productivity we saw towards the end mm-hmm. of, end of the year and start of the year. We have seen things a little bit of an uptick. Um, so fingers crossed. I think everyone's crossing their fingers for that. We'd like to see see that coming through. So our challenge, whilst we're waiting for it to get back to a buoyant yeah. market, is always going to be how do we attract the right people and how do we make sure we're getting the right people through our organisation. And so when you're attracting, is it, do you take people that have already been working for your competitors or do you take people from the beginning 
Or is it a blend of the two? What's your sort of preferred approach? Historically, it's just been entry level. Again, very similar to S3, whereby that model of we hire people at entry level, they might do their national service at Foxton's, as I say. That's the problem. Sometimes we end up training our competitors. The industry is full of ex-Foxton's people working in other, other big companies. So we've only switched recently since I joined to start focusing on hiring more experienced people. Okay. We don't want to dilute our culture too much. No. We don't have a mismatch of lots of different exes coming in. Yeah, yeah. What we want is a Foxton's culture. We're known for it and we're really proud of it. Um, but, but topping up with a few experienced people in key roles is a good thing to do. It's good for succession planning. Um, it's good for bringing in a breadth of knowledge. It's really key, yeah. but not so much that it dilutes our culture. So we're going to carry on with the focus around hiring entry-level people for our, our sales roles, um, but topping up in certain areas where we might need some experience coming in. Um, what we're doing, because actually... I always find it interesting. Some people think that you know hiring entry level people is easy because they're just newbies. They're the hardest. They're the hardest to hire new salespeople. They haven't had a job before. It's usually yeah. their first job. Yeah. They're they're a bit flaky at the start of their careers. Sales skills are generally soft skills. We can't see it on a CV. We've got to look at them in assessment centres. So it's quite a rigorous thing to do. So we've introduced a load more um, evidence based scientific methods to oh, the process. Okay. So. With my business psychology background, we've started using assessment centres, which are using the principles and guidelines from the British Psychological Society. That's been really important. We've got some occupational psychologists in to design some sifting techniques for us. Okay. We're going to be starting to use it. One of them is called a match me tool, which um, our head of talent calls the sorting hat. It'll help sort people out. So we're going to have the sorting hat in place online yeah. at some point. We're looking also at situational judgment tests. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. bring in some rigour, some scientific rigour around the way we hire those those um, rookies coming in yeah, yeah. is really important. Um, so that's going to be key for us, making sure we've got the right talent coming in. Because if you get that bit wrong, the rest of it is wrong. Yeah, yeah, it's really absolutely. important. And you also mentioned the culture being critical or really important to you. So describe to me what the culture is and... And, and, and what are you doing to retain it or to, to enhance it or to develop it? It's such a it's such a lovely culture. And I think um, on my first day or first week, there was a stream of people that just came up to my desk and they all asked me the same question. They always said, um, <laughs> what's the chief people officer do? So I, I would say to them, you know, it's about getting the right talent in the right place and the right structure. And then they'd say, and did you make the job title up? Because you've never heard it before. And I went, no, it's generally a real job, don't worry. But there was a real interest in me joining and everyone came to say, welcome. And I've never known a company to be so welcoming and friendly. Mm. Our staff are really lovely. So I think what, what joins everyone together is, again, most people join from the very beginning and go all the way. So you've got people in our organisation have been there 15, 20, 30 years from the beginning. A lot of our senior management have been, you know, from the very beginning all the way up. And that really drives the culture. Super friendly, very inclusive, very focused on service. And they're just great fun. We have two big trips here as incentives where we take like 150 people away. We've got skiing coming up in March. And it just gave me the opportunity to meet a bunch of them. And they, they are a really nice bunch of people to hang out with. There's lots of difference, by the way. We don't hire clones. We're really into hiring people based on competencies and personality. But everyone's pretty pretty different. At the last, um, we went to an away day. The senior management went off to a hotel um, last week. And one of our area directors was joking, you know, he comes from a completely different background from me. You know, I'm from Wales, Welsh comprehensive school, you know, moved to London with, without much money. He comes from, you know, a different background, private education. Um, he's, got, he's hugely well connected. We got on like a house on fire. And that's what Foxons is like. Very different people will just get on famously because they all have a bit of a common bond, I think. So what is it? What is it, the bit underneath? What is that DNA that, you know, people with different backgrounds with different approaches and history and experience what what is it that, that was similar about you in this 
Do you know what? When we've done our engagement surveys, we ask people what words to describe Foxtons, and the ones that come out most are friendly, fun, passionate, um, helpful. Um, and so we we can use it down to buzzwords if you like. Mm. But generally, it's a bunch of people who really like hanging out together. There's lots of um, funny enough, there's lots of Foxtons marriages that happen. There's lots of people who've met their partners in Foxtons. Um, there's lots of big friendship groups. They do genuinely all like hanging out together. They're a really good bunch of people. So there's a, there's a commonality around um, their view of the world. Everyone's got very similar values. I think we don't really take ourselves too seriously. There's lots of lots of fun that way. But I think we're just very inclusive. Okay, thank uh, you for to that. Jump, jump on that a little bit, actually. One more thing I would say. A lot of the estate agency world can be seen as um, very old school traditional. Um, bit, bit of a, you know, the, the old school tie, quite quite male. If you ever look at any of our photos from our inductions, you see we've got a very diverse group of people at work. We're 50-50 male, female, split across the business. And we have lots lots of different people represented in our business. And our different um, DNI communities um, are very strong in our <coughs> So it's really important to us that we do have that diversity. We're quite proud of it. It's not something that's been engineered, it's just something that we have. And how, how, how are you doing, uh, you know, gender and race in relation to management and progression? Because that's more of a challenge. That is it? more of a challenge. The challenge we have in a state agency is that it happens after six o'clock, right? So a lot of people buy houses between six and eight. If you're going to be an estate agent, actually, it's quite difficult to say, I'm not doing Saturdays, I'm not doing evenings. But I think everyone in the industry has that challenge. So it's something we're working to. We have a, we have a Women at Foxton's group, along with a Afro at Foxton's group, and we have an LGBTQ plus group. So we have three really strong communities. And funny enough, we had, um, we had a slot at, parade, at the Pride Parade oh, last cool. year. So myself and my 12-year-old daughter walked in that parade last year. So my daughter, Teg, got to hold a Foxton sign. She's very proud of it. So we do lots of stuff, stuff with our communities. Okay, uh, we'll leave it there. We'll be back in a couple of minutes for the second half of the podcast with Sarah Mason from Foxtons, and we'll be talking about HR, uh, what we're good at, what we're not good at, how we can get better, and a bit about technology and some of the changes that are likely to be around the corner and how do we respond to that. So back in a couple of minutes. Are you looking to reduce risks and operating costs? or increase your agility and capacity. There's more pressure than ever for HR and finance to provide strategic value for the business and for CEOs. At Zealous, our expert team creates software and managed services that handle your entire payroll and HR admin processes. We believe there are two sides to the employee experience. The fundamentals that need to go unnoticed and experiences that employees really care about. And we can help you master both. We're here to make the complex simple freeing you up to focus on your people and achieve your goals. Find out more at zealous.com. Welcome back to the second part of our HR Futures podcast. Uh, with me today is Sarah Mason from Foxtons. I really enjoyed the first half of the podcast, Sarah. Um, let's kick off by talking a little bit about transformation and change. You know, one of my questions I think on these podcasts quite uh, consistently is should HR be leading those processes have we got the right skills have we got the right capability to you know program manage or project manage the organization whatever it may be modernizing itself you know uh, applying technology changing its culture what's your take that's a good question I think um, it's quite a big question I think the answer is yes and no yes HR should be involved in the sense that 
Changes normally impact on people, so it'd be weird for HR not to be involved if people are, are usually in the heart of change. Um, but secondly, it does depend on what the problem is and what the transformation is. So, you know, are they rolling out an IT system? Or are they changing culture? I think they're both different approaches. Um, and because I've studied organisational change, I can probably talk about it all day, but I won't, obviously. But there's loads of different approaches to take, and each one has to be Situ- um, specific to the context I think a lot yeah. of people go very quickly to what's called a linear end step model Absolutely. or a planned approach yeah. you know which is we're gonna you know find a compelling vision to start with we'll go with Cotter's eight stage process <laughs> and we'll go down that and actually people don't follow linear processes regularly they tend to be a bit more erratic so if if you've got an HR person who understands people and change they can really help move it from a pure project management Gantt chart approach to actually something a bit, bit more people centric. Um, but you need to have the right HR person in place. I've met plenty, plenty of HR people who are good at that. I've also met some who aren't. Um, the more process led HR professional might struggle with that because I've often heard people say, why don't people just get it? And you go, well, they don't, do they? Because they're, they're, for lots of reasons, they're a bit annoyed with what's happening to them. Mm. And I, there's a great quote by a guy called Jack, Jack Strebel who said, senior people see change as an opportunity junior people see it as disruption and i'm always i'm always mindful of that you know what might be a great change for the business can often be really um detrimental or upsetting mm. for the worker any sort of hints and tips and from your experience of managing change projects things that you've done that you thought well oh, that was quite you know that's been really helpful i, I wouldn't have thought about that before or you know, and it might be things that perhaps didn't work or didn't go as well. But you know, just to some snippets of things that you think actually have been good learning points for you in relation to change and transformation. I think the first thing would be really understanding the difference between planned and emergent change. So planned change is when you're clear from the beginning what you're trying to achieve, and you're going to have a very specific project plan for it. That's that's very useful approach when you've got a simplistic problem where you know the solution, like an IT rollout. If you go, we're all agreed that we need um, a new system, let's do it in this eight-step way, that's great. But if you've got what um, what's called, that's, that would be called um, a difficulty. If you've got what's called a mess, as in you don't have a known problem, a known outcome or a known solution, that planned approach doesn't work so well. You've got to be more emergent. You've got to actually start including more people to say what they think would be the answer. It can't just be a couple of people at the top driving that I think allowing change to emerge upwards rather than it being imposed on people is always difficult when you've got a complex problem planned approach very good for the simplistic ones not so good for the complex problems Um, so I think it's the mantra I'd often go to for change is always don't don't impose something on me without me so when people want to be involved in change they want to be included Um, I remember working with an organization once who were doing a change looking at their German office, and um, they were about to change everyone's job titles and the structure. I mean, that's a weighty change to do. That's pretty big. It's about as big as you can get. And the person managing the change said it won't be a problem. They'll be fine with it. I went, okay, but here's the thing. How, how about how about tomorrow you go in and you, you take away the coffee machine and see how they react each week? She said, they'll go crazy. I went, exactly. You take away the coffee and they're going to go crazy. Imagine what will happen when you change the structure of their promotion criteria in their jobs. They are going to really react to that one. Don't assume people won't react because I think normally you're going to get some kind of reaction. And we shouldn't be surprised or worried by that. I think it just shows people care. I'd be worried when they don't react. You know, I think normally when people react to stuff, mm. it's a why would we be upset by that? People have got a right to react to things in their workplace. We have to use that. 
yeah. find working with leaders on when you're sort of managing change and transformation because because quite often they've been brought up about you know top down leader knows best just do what I say and actually it'll be fine you know we need to change this structure or the way that we do stuff um, and you may be saying to them well you know, we need to take people with us it will take a bit longer it'll be a bit more messy yeah. we need to engage people listen to what they have to say. They find that quite frustrating at times, don't they? So how have yeah. you gone about, you know, persuading, influencing and demonstrating there's different ways of getting the right outcome? There is a real fear um, of people being negative about change. So again, I remember working with some senior leaders in an organisation and I said, this is quite a big change we're about to go into we need to communicate with people. When I said communicate, I don't mean like broadcast at them. We need to have a dialogue-based communication. We need to hear what they're going to have to say. And I suggested a hopes and fears exercise. So let's let's hear what, they, what they're positive about and what they're negative about. So hopes and fears or, you know, enablers and barriers of language you want to use. And one of the senior guys said, oh, can we just do the positive bit but not the negative bit? Because I don't want them all negging each other out. It's like, okay, if we don't have them in a room doing it, they'll go and do it anyway down the pub, right? They'll have that chat without us. We won't be able to respond to it. It'll be much worse. We may as well hear it from them because I'll be thinking it anyway. So at least then we can tackle it. But if we don't give them a platform to tell us, we can't do anything about it. And they got that. I think they got the fact that actually just not hearing it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> it does exist yeah, yeah. and we need to tackle it. So I think there's, there's, it's regularly just saying, it, well, the way that I normally tackle it would be, let's all remember what outcome we're going to get. Are we likely to get this outcome if no one agrees with us? Are we likely to get this outcome if we shut people down? What we can't do is have endless conversations about what if, but having the right level of communication is key. Okay, uh, I'm interested in you know talking a bit about our profession, uh, what we do within organisations, so HR or people management. You know, uh, just tell me about the things that frustrate you the most, that that worry you about uh, HR, perhaps how it's taught or how it's applied in organisations. And then, you know, what are the opportunities? What should we be doing? How can we add more impact? How can we make more difference? Um, it's interesting because I think whilst there's lots of frustrating things, there's also lots of positive areas and it's, it's always tempting to jump on the, the negatives. And I think there's lots of great practice happening out there. Um, the, the networks I belong to, I belong to a whole bunch of networks and there's usually very motivated people who are talented come along to them what I worry about is, is the people who don't come to them <laughs> the people who don't come to the networks who maybe aren't develop, developing themselves so I think as with any profession you're going to have groups of people who maybe aren't as interested or passionate maybe aren't developing themselves and are sticking with what they learned 20 years ago and maybe what they learned 20 years ago wasn't that great in the first place that's a bit I'd worry about yeah. uh, that's why it's useful having professional bodies that can help us get better so what networks do you participate in how do you oh loads of them I well the CIPD mainly but I also belong to there's a big network on Twitter there's loads of HR professionals on Twitter and I generally then go and meet up with them at various conferences so I've made a huge network of um fellow HR buddies through Twitter. Um, funny enough, I went to a concert recently, went to see the Pixies, showing my age, so yeah, 90s yeah, band. Pixies, yeah. And I walked in and I bumped into one of my Twitter friends who's the HR director of... Um, sorry, I'm about to sneeze, I stopped. Okay. <laughs> so I bumped into one of my, one of my buddies who's the um, HR director of Addison Lee, so both ended up watching the Pixies together. So, And I met him through Twitter. So Twitter is a very big a big um, network, I think, of HR professionals. 
plenty of places. There's no shortage of places to meet other HR people if you choose to. Um, other networks, Corporate and Cocktails is very good for people starting off their career. Say that one again, I don't know that. Do you know that one, Corporate no. and Cocktails? So Andy Selway runs those. They do actually have cocktails there. They're very good. So Corporate and Cocktails is a very good one. They're all over LinkedIn. They meet up regularly, um, have great talks. You've got the, the My HR Party one run, run, run by Varan, I believe. So there's plenty of networks out there if someone wants to get involved. Um, it's when people step away and think I'm I'm not interested that's when I'd probably that'd be the bad practice that you tend to see okay um, obviously we hear a lot about you know AI machine learning algorithms you know technology disrupting the jobs market and it clearly will have an impact on organizations you know what's your take on uh, what you think it could do in your organization or in your sector um, I think technology is massively important and I think in the last year and a half alone we've put loads of tech in to help us with some of our HR practices we put a new applicant tracking system in oh, which is the, the the least sexy of all the technologies it isn't is. it it's not particularly hot no one loves it no one it? loves it no one ever you know eulogizes about their ATS but it's helped us um, be better at searching for good candidates and build a talent pipeline and that's pretty sexy so I'm quite happy yeah, with yeah. having a talent pipeline so applicant tracking systems went in last year we like I say we, we put in open blend this digital coaching platform which I think is brilliant and we also put in our first digital learning platform oh, so we're using um, Litmos for that and again that's really shifted the way we do learning if you think about the bulk yeah. of our workers they're all car drivers 800 people out in the front in their minis if they have to come all the way back to Chiswick Park head office to learn something in a classroom then drive back to their area again they lose half a day so having a digital platform whilst it seems obvious to lots of people it was new for Foxton so that's got that's really successful cool. gone in really well we currently have 96% of people who've logged in and using it I mean is there any real disruption coming down can, can people I mean presumably people buy houses online do they need a negotiator can it be done in a different way oh you mean is tech there... outside of HR tech for our front yeah, office possibly just actually in terms of your business could it fundamentally be disrupted by technology I think it, I think I wouldn't necessarily use the word disrupt in the sense that it can certainly be improved and I think we do a lot of technology solutions for our clients already so there's quite a lot of clever things we're doing in Foxton's around the tech the tech piece particularly around things like um, deposit releases how do we enable our tenants to get their deposits okay. back really quickly so there's lots of things that can be done from a, mm. a process point of view through technology which we're looking at at the moment so we we do have a very big um, IT department mm. always working on these things for us definitely I think that's quite key but in terms of HR tech again it depends on what you're trying to achieve with it well, I think the problem with HR tech quite often is there's a huge market. There's it's very fragmented. There's a array of stuff out there. Yeah. You know, I was at an event this week and there was hundreds of suppliers there, and you think I haven't got time to even understand what some of this stuff is. So again, I think there's a there's a great opportunity for someone to be able to I don't know create you know and actually help HR directors look at technology because you know it's moving at such a pace there's so many opportunities i think i mean i went and did a talk at the cipd conference this year last year around choosing hr technology and my view was very much around even when i'm not looking for it i'm looking for it i'm always at any conference i'm at looking at what's there because i agree it's there's so much of it it's almost overwhelming but i don't I, i would worry about looking for it at the time of need i need to know beforehand and sometimes what's possible, what's possible, possible. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And sometimes, you know, open blend 
came out of nowhere and I thought that's going to be super useful for us and it solved a problem I had at mm. that point we were looking at leadership programs so I was thinking actually instead of going down a traditional classroom route with that wouldn't a digital platform solve our problem better than having lots of people in the classroom again so it's actually sometimes those that tech can come out of nowhere I think it's very useful okay um sort of getting to the end of the podcast tell us a little bit about if a young person was you know introduced to you and they were you know, I don't know, perhaps they've done a first job somewhere else and they were thinking about HR as a career or a profession. What would you be saying to them? I think it's a brilliant career to be in. I mean, I'm obviously hugely biased, but I love it. I think um, I'd, I'd probably advise them to have a think about whether they want to go down the specialist or generalist route. There's pros and cons to both. I think, I mean, again, whether or not they wanted to go come in from the Tell beginning. Tell me a bit about that. I mean, one of the great things that you said at the beginning about your career, and I, I'm... And I think one of the things that we do need to in HR is think about this. I, I, I think we do need to bring people in that have done other roles to HR and see it as something where it isn't a black art, where people can come in and do a really good job for two or three years and then perhaps go back into sales or operations yes. or IT and whatever. Uh, and I think that we need to, to think about careers in that way. And I also want to see HR people going out playing big leadership roles, you know, I'm still wheeled out occasionally to talk about HR and chief execs because people struggle to find chief execs that have been HR directors. Yes. And that's, I can't quite understand why. You know, yeah. there's something. And some of that might be the HR people saying, I don't want this. And some of it might be not giving opportunities. But I think it's quite difficult to become a chief exec unless you've had line experience and leadership roles in your career. And I don't, you know, I think we could be more creative with careers and thinking about how people... Anyhow, I'm going off at a tangent. No, no, I agree. But I'm interested in your take on, you know, do, pe- do we want people to just come in and do a generalist role, then do a specialist role, and then become a business partner, and then try and be an HR director? Yeah, I understand that. I think it's tricky, isn't it? Because I think if people have done an HR degree, they're desperate then to get an HR job. And there's lots of people out there with an HR degree. And whilst an HR degree will teach them things like the science of a psychological contract, it might teach them um, Ulrich's three-legged stool model, it won't teach them how to write a grievance letter. And that's a challenge, isn't it? It won't give them any practical, necessarily practical advice. Um, so I think if if people choose to go down that route, I can understand it. It's quite a slow route, though. You've got to do your time in the trenches. You're going to have to do a few years doing admin. I personally, the thought of doing a few years of admin would it would have killed me. So I was very happy to do sales first. And then it meant that I shortcutted the admin. I never had yeah, to do yeah. that. I went straight in as a specialist, recruitment specialist, learning and development specialist. And then I circled back to get the professional training to get the employment law knowledge to be a generalist. The only thing I'd be worried about is people who are coming in from a non-HR role into it and not getting formal training. So I've seen a number of HR people out there who've done that and they can get things badly wrong with employment law. Mm. They can get themselves yeah, into yeah. a lot of trouble. So I think as long as there's there's a route in and people can't wing yeah. it too much. But the specialist roles, I think, are a very good route in. Um, I think, personally, me, I, I benefited usually from, from having a career, a non-HR career before joining. Definitely so. And it has given me, rightly or wrongly, a certain level of kudos and credibility mm. in a sales yeah, organisation yeah. having done it. But um, but I think it's just important to let people know there's more than one route in. It doesn't have to be an HR degree, followed by admin, followed by advisor. I mean, that's a long route and you may not be getting lots and lots of um, no, experience along the way. By the way, with our team at the moment, we're, we're encouraging all our admin, our admin and advisors to be as... Um, advisory as possible they go to all the networking events we can get them on they're always learning their employment law we want them to be skilled up quickly i would hate to hold someone back doing a job where they could add more meaning to it i think people can get bored otherwise absolutely 
So uh, as we sort of uh, start to wrap up, tell us a bit about Sarah the woman. So what do you do apart from HR and work very hard at Foxton? Tell us a bit about the things you've obviously mentioned, the pixie. So music, is that high in the mix? Literature, theatre, you know, you've got a 12-year-old daughter. Um, so tell us about what you do outside of work. Usually really knackered after <laughs> usually super knackered. Um, a lot of the time, spending time with my family, obviously, my husband and my daughter, and we do try and fit in some London stuff. So last year we had quite a few gigs. We went to lots of gigs and went to the Royal Albert Hall for concerts and did some fun things as well. So we do try and book some stuff in, some mm. things to look forward to and a few holidays. Is that just you and your husband or you, your husband and your daughter? Bit of both, yeah. bit of both. Sometimes it's nice to have time with just the two of us. Sometimes we do family stuff. Um, but yes, yeah, so kind of family time, definitely. What's happening right now is obviously the Six Nations is on, and oh, I'm a okay. big Welsh rugby fan. I know I don't sound particularly Welsh, I lost my accent, but I'm a huge fan of rugby. So generally, between the next couple of months, my weekends are spent watching rugby. So there we go. We've got Wales Island this weekend to mm. see how we get on. Um, and I was lucky enough last year to go and get tickets to go to go and see it. We saw the Wales Island game last year in in Cardiff and when we won the, the Grand Slam. So sometimes when I'm lucky enough, I actually go and watch some rugby. Depends if we can get tickets. Yeah. Sounds cool. Um, thank you for the podcast. Really enjoyed talking to you. I think people will find it quite stimulating. I think you've um, mentioned lots of things where people almost probably might reach out um, on Twitter or LinkedIn. They're very welcome to. They can do that. But thanks for your time, Sarah. Really appreciate it. Thank you.